Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. You guys can take a seat. You doing good today? You're looking good. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be with you this morning. So a couple months ago, my sister and brother-in-law asked if they could borrow my car to drive up to Minneapolis for a conference, and I was a little bit shocked. Those of you who know my car are laughing right now because I drive a 14-year-old Ford Focus. If you zoom in on that picture, you'll find multiple pieces of duct tape. They just blend in because they're silver. And that car is so fancy. Recently, my teenage son said, Dad, when I turn 16, I think I'd rather just not have a car than inherit your car. So it was a little taken aback that I got asked to borrow it for a road trip. But apparently their check engine light had popped on and they needed like a last ditch solution that could maybe get them there. So I said, yes, we laid hands on the focus and prayed for it, that they would just help them survive. And they made it. But when they got back, my brother-in-law said, Mike, I hate to tell you this, but I think something's wrong. Like when I had it stop, especially if it was sudden in downtown traffic, and sometimes when I turned, there's this rumbling sound in the back that sounded like a bunch of golf balls hitting each other. It was a little bit freaky. And at that point, I breathed a sigh of relief, and I told him, hey, it's all right. This has happened before. I think I know how we can fix it. And he asked, how? I said, well, we got to open the trunk and put all my golf balls back in the box that tipped over. <laughs> I was just glad it was a cheap fix. In this economy, It's rough. And it seems like everything around me with an engine is breaking down these days. We had to put a part on our van last week that I can't even pronounce, much less describe the function of. My car is held together with duct tape. On Thursday, the latch that opens the tailgate on the church truck just came off in my hand. I don't know why. And the revision shuttle decided it does not start if it's under 60 degrees, so it's been dead for two weeks. Like Our pet's heads are falling off. It's a lot. And it's expensive. And maybe some of you can relate to that, like vehicle troubles creating some anxiety about money in your life. Or maybe it's not your car, but as you sit down and check out the spreadsheet, you realize that sometimes right now you got too much month left at the end of the money. Or maybe you're not even struggling in this area, but as you look at your whole life, your job and your finances and your retirement account and your kids and your grandkids and your school loans and your grocery bills and your 401k and a whole lot more, you have some significant stress in the area of money. And if that's you, you're not alone. 90% of American adults report that they regularly feel stressed out about money and two-thirds say their financial situation has a negative effect on their mental health. This is a massive cultural problem. So this morning we're kicking off a new series called The Test because it turns out God has a whole lot to say about your money and how you can use it in a way that doesn't leave you constantly stressed out and crushed with anxiety. I want to kick things off by telling a story I think probably a lot of us can relate to. It's about a woman who was broke and feeling hopeless because there was no clear way out of her situation. In 2 Kings 4, we read about a widow who approached the prophet Elisha and said, hey, my husband is dead. We were in debt. I have no way to pay it back. Now these creditors are threatening to take my sons as slaves. Can you please help me? 
And Elisha looked at her and said, well, what do you have in your house? And she said, nothing. I, I have nothing other than like one small flask of oil. And he said, oh, that's going to be perfect. Here's what I want you to do. Take your sons, go to your friends and family and neighbors, gather up all the jars that you possibly can, bring them back home, pour out your flask into those jars, see what happens. That's a ridiculous set of instructions. But I love the next line. It says, she did as she was told. She just did as she was told. And they got all these jars together and it turned out her little flask didn't run out of oil until every single jar had been filled. And so she lost her mind. She ran to go tell Elijah. She's like, look, look what happened. He said, that's awesome. Sell everything you don't need and that should be able to pay off your debts. Okay, we got this woman here whose husband is dead. Her future and her son's futures are on the line. She comes to Elisha not thinking that she has what she needs. Her stress level has got to be through the roof. And then he gives her this seemingly crazy task. But I love that instead of clinging to what little she had, she just obeyed and poured it out to see what God might do with it. And it's interesting because what Elisha asked her to do is irrational and it's illogical. And she had to have questions in her mind, right? She had to have some doubts about whether it would work, but she didn't let those questions or doubts stop her from moving forward toward what God had called her to. And here's why that matters. The functional question for her not just in this moment, but for the rest of her life, was not whether she would do things that made a lot of sense in her mind. It was whether or not she trusted God. And that's the functional question for us as well. I wanna let you know in your life, especially when it comes to your finances, God will often ask you for irrational, illogical obedience. Why? Because your money issues aren't really about money at all. Jesus made that clear repeatedly. He actually talked more about money than he did about heaven and hell combined. I know as soon as we start talking about money in the church, people get nervous. Some of us even get mad. or like, oh great, here it goes. The church just wants my money. And I get it. This is a little bit of an intense subject to talk about, but allow me to be bold for a minute. If Jesus cared so much about this that he talked about it more than almost anything else, I think a church that won't talk about it isn't worth going to. I think as a leader, it would be a lot easier for me to just avoid it. But if I'm going to skip over a massive chunk of what Jesus said, then I'm a bad leader. Because again, our money issues are really not about money. They're about our trust. They're about our worship. They're about whether or not we actually believe that the God of the universe cares enough to provide for us. Ultimately, our money stuff is about our souls because money will constantly fight with God to sit on the throne of our hearts. The problem is it does it in kind of a sneaky way. It kind of creeps its way onto the throne. It's interesting, Luke 12, Jesus says, be on the lookout for all kinds of greed. There's a hundred different ways materialism will get you, so keep your eyes peeled. But he doesn't really say that about other sins. There's no point at which Jesus says, be on the lookout for all kinds of adultery. You know why? People know when they're doing that one. It's really hard to subconsciously commit adultery. Like no one in history has been like, what? Oops, you're not my wife. <laughs> that was weird. 
Stop it. That doesn't happen. Greed is different, though. It kind of invades our souls and takes over without us noticing that it's the thing that we're worshiping and the thing that we're trusting, which is why God talks so much about it. Because what God knows is that if and when that happens, Our money will rob life from us. It will prevent us from moving forward toward the dreams that he's placed in our souls. It will crush us with anxiety when our hope has migrated from our creator to our cash. See, the thing is, sometimes we don't like admitting that money has as much of a grip on our lives as it does. We'll confess to other stuff. We're like, oh yeah, I have anger issues. I'm I'm, I'm a workaholic. Yeah, I... I struggle with addiction, but money, no, 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 no. That doesn't have its, its grip on me. I mean, I, I'm stressed out about it like every day of my life, but it doesn't, it doesn't control me. The thing is, money has the power to blind us to its power. So that's why Jesus made such a big deal about it. Because your hope and your happiness, your peace and your purpose, your faith and your future are on the line. God does not want us to be robbed of the beauty and the meaning and the peace we were created for. And so he invites us to irrational, illogical obedience. And in doing that, he promises that if we'll release like our death grip on what little we have and pour it out, he will multiply his blessings in our lives. He even has a name and a word for this irrational, illogical solution to our stress about finances. Tithe. It means 10th or 10%. You guys, God says tithing is the solution to our tension with money. Tithing is the solution to our tension with finances. And real quick, I want to talk about what tithing is all about, but I'm going to kick it off by telling you two things tithing is not about. Number one, tithing is not about money. It's about trust. It's about intentionally orienting your heart in a way where you trust God enough to allow him to sit on the throne of your life. And number two, tithing is not about charitable giving. They count the same in the U.S. tax code. They're not the same thing or the same word in the Bible. Charitable giving is when you find an organization, like a a food shelf, a kids program, a church that has a building program, maybe named Build the Future. That'd be a cool name for one, hypothetically speaking. Someone that's writing a better story for the world and you give out of your resources to help them move the mission forward. Forward. The Bible has a word from that. It's teruma. It means offerings. And we're expected. God actually invites us to give with open hands to bless the people around us whenever he tugs at our hearts for that stuff. But tithing is completely different. Tithing is giving 10% back to God because it belongs to him. Tithing is when we take a portion of what God's placed in our hands and we hand it back to him because it's his anyway. And he asks us to do that, to regularly remind ourselves who we really trust to provide for our future. You got to get this. Everything you own, every single thing belongs to God. Psalm 24 doesn't say the earth is the Lord's and some of the stuff in it. It says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. I know we're Americans. Something in us recoils at that a little bit. You're like, wait up, wait up, wait up. I worked really hard for the stuff that's mine. Uh, I, I earned it. It's, it's my computer, my clothes, my car, my house. And it is, you did work really hard for it, right? You did. However, you worked 
with gifts and abilities given to you by God. With breath in your nostrils and a heartbeat in your chest sustained by God. In time and a place, God put you where your work could get that stuff. Because let's say God dreamed you up, knit you together, and had you born on a mountain in Mongolia a thousand years ago, you would not have your truck or your Tesla. You might have a real sturdy pony, though. So, I mean, that'd be cool, maybe. I'm just saying. And if the idea still kind of grates at you a little bit, that everything belongs to God, let's get real philosophical with it. If there is a God who created and sustains everything, then everything is his. If there's not, it's still not yours. It just temporarily belongs to you until someone bigger and stronger than you comes along and takes it. And that might make you mad, but you can't call it wrong or evil because outside the existence of the divine, there is no objective standard by which you can measure that. So your only solution left is to join in some sort of a a society and tacitly accept what John Locke, John Jacques Rousseau, and Thomas Hobbes called a social contract. That's where you give up some of your stuff. In the United States, we do this in the form of taxes so that the greater society can protect the rest of your stuff from a bigger, stronger person coming along and stealing it. And hopefully from a bigger, stronger society coming along, conquering you, murdering you, and stealing it. As Hobbes said, life is nasty, brutish, and short. And speaking of that, either way, no matter who you think owns your stuff, somebody else will soon. The Bible says, naked you were born, naked you'll die, everything else stays. That may be a distressing reality, but it's reality. Because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But here's the beauty of that. When we realize that, we can live with peace knowing that every single thing we have is a gift from a giver who loves us enough to provide. He cares so much about us that he puts it in our hands to provide for us. And he asks for 10% back because he understands that if all the blessings he's given us are gonna add life to us rather than rob life from us, if they're actually gonna help us step toward our created creative purpose rather than crush us, we gotta tithe to remind ourselves to trust. I got 10 $1 bills here, and it's pretty simple. What God does with us, it says, hey, here you go. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I'm going to hand this to you. And then to remind yourself regularly to trust me, to remind yourself to put me on the throne of your life because I need you to know for your good, for your faith, for your future, for your hope and for your peace, I need you to know that I provide. I just want you to give one back. And do whatever you want with the other 90%. Buy a car that doesn't have duct tape. Buy a truck with a working tailgate. I don't know, go crazy with it. It really is this simple but we tend to make it a whole lot more complicated when the number's a whole lot bigger than $10. We pretend like we don't know how to do that math anymore. But here's the uncomfortable truth. The math doesn't get any harder as the numbers go up. Our hearts just get harder. The math doesn't get any more complicated. Our hearts just tend to cling a little bit more tightly. And we know that's true. There are a whole bunch of secular studies that say the more people make, the less generous they become and the more anxious about finances they feel. 
And this is an ancient problem. A couple hundred years ago, the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard put it like this. Riches and abundance come hypocritically clad in sheep's clothing. Pretending to be security against anxieties, they then become the object of anxiety. They secure a man against anxieties just about as well as a wolf that is put to tending the sheep. If 19th century Danish existentialists aren't your thing, a notorious 20th century philosopher from New York City said the same thing in less words. Mo money, mo problems. And don't question Biggie on this. Every last one of us knows that he's right. But God gives us the exact antidote. He wants to bless us with the 90%, but he knows if that isn't gonna imprison us, we gotta tithe so that he sits on the throne of our lives rather than our bank accounts and our 401ks. There's a really cool passage about how faithfulness in this area makes a massive difference. in the book of Malachi. So if you got a, a Bible or a Bible handy this morning, you can crack it open to Malachi. It's about three-fourths of the way through. If you hit Zechariah, keep going. If you hit Matthew, go back. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along with the words on the screen. If you need one or your kids do, there's a bunch back in the Next Steps area. Take one before you leave today. This is what's going on in in Malachi chapter three. There's a drought and the Israelites are kind of suffering. They're like, where's God in this drought? Why isn't he showing up for us the way that we expected him to show up for us? And this is how God responds to them starting in verse seven. He says, ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. You ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. All right, there's a lot to unpack here, but first things first, return to me and I will return to you is this Hebrew turn of phrase where God's looking at the Israelites saying, hey, you keep wondering where I am. I'm not the one who left. You bailed and ran away from me and I'm right here waiting for you to come back. And so they ask the question, well, how? What does it look like? How in the world can we find our way back to you? And this is where it gets intense. God says, you could start by not stealing from me anymore. You are robbing from me. What's crazy is that the word we translate robbing right there only shows up one other time in the Bible. It is not the normal Hebrew word for theft. Instead, it's this really violent term that means oppressively ripping something out of the hands of someone who owns it. And it's God's way of saying, this isn't accidental. This isn't like, oh yeah, we forgot. This is intentional and malicious. You are holding on to what belongs to me. And they're confused. Their response to that is probably the same as, as most of ours would be. They're like, God, how are we robbing you? I don't even, like, I, I, I'm not stealing from church. I mean, I got a couple revision pins, you know, that's, I, but that, I didn't even take them on purpose. I just like them. And I'm not like reaching into the bucket and snatching cash out. Lord, what do you mean? Now, listen, I know you all have revision pins. We budget for that. If you're the only person here who doesn't, they're in the corner. They're good pins. I got a, I got a handful myself. But I hope you're not, you know, stealing money out of the bucket when it passes. If you do, though, I'm not going to blame you. My kid has done it. 
not here, but when the twins were like three, we were at the Beaverdale Parade and some charity was coming along collecting stuff for something. And I think Tommy just figured everyone was handing stuff out. So he ran over, reached into a bucket and came running back with a handful of cash. Like pastor's kids. I mean, I put it in my pocket real quick before anyone saw, but he shouldn't have done that. That's my point. All right, but God's, God's really clear here. He uses this violent, shocking word to say, hey, you're robbing from me. And they're like, how are we robbing from you? And he gives them a really specific answer. He says, in tithes and offerings, in your 10% plus your charitable giving, that's still in your wallet and it's not yours. It's mine and you are refusing to return to me what belongs to me. I gave it to you and I asked for a small portion back, but you wouldn't give it. And so now you're a nation living under a curse. Not because I'm so angry that you didn't jump through the right religious hoop or check off the right religious box, but because your hope and your love has migrated from your creator to your cash and it is killing you. It's killing you. I think sometimes it's hard for us to see that part. Like if we never move beyond like the dollars and cents and spreadsheets and numbers of it, no wonder money's a stressful thing to talk about in church because it just feels like, oh great, here's another religious ritual that I have to be a part of. It's another like thing to do in order to hopefully placate God so he's not angry with me, but God's not talking about that at all. He's speaking here on this grand cosmic level that has nothing to do with the amount in the bank that determines our wealth and everything to do with the throne of our hearts that determines our health. God's not worried about wealth. He's worried about health. So he looks and he says, I'm I'm giving to you, I'm providing for you, and yet it's oppressing you because you're not seeing it the right way. And what I would love is for you to be set free. You guys, this is about health, not wealth. And when it comes to our souls, there's something way bigger at play than the number of zeros in our bank account. Your purpose and your peace, your hope and your happiness, your faith and your future are on the line. That's what God's getting at when he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. The whole tithe and see what I'll do. Every temple in the ancient Near Eastern world for every different God had a storehouse. Sometimes in the Old Testament, it's referred to as the treasury. It's where they would keep grain and goods and gold and anything people donated. And then they would use it to make sure that the deity of that temple was being appropriately worshipped. And so when God says, hey, bring the whole tithe to my storehouse, not part of it, not tithes plus offerings equals two and a half percent like the average Christian household in the United States of America, not whatever's left over at the end of the month, but the whole thing, bring it to my storehouse, what he's saying is that every bit of it that isn't in my storehouse is in somebody else's storehouse being used to worship a different God. That whatever part of it you can't release to me, you are releasing in the service of a different God who's sitting on the throne of your heart, whether you recognize that or not. And the implication here is that if you find it difficult to give to God, but easy to spend on clothes or cars or your house or concert tickets or sports tickets or technology or whatever it is, 
Or even if you're one of the people sitting here like, oh no, I don't buy any frivolous stuff. I just put it all in investments. Pick your poison. If it's hard for you to give to the church, but easy for you to put money somewhere else, then your worship has migrated to that somewhere else. And the problem is God has zero interest whatsoever in sharing the throne of your heart because he loves you and he's the only one who will not ultimately crush your heart. And so he says, bring the whole tithe to my storehouse. You know, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is. Where your treasure is, is the place you most want to be. And it's the place you're ultimately gonna end up. There's a link in the ancient Near Eastern world between treasure and worship. Like our hearts are inextricably linked to our treasure and your money will ultimately flow to the storehouse of your treasure. It's a good gut check. Your money right now is probably flowing to the storehouse of your treasure. And so God looks at Israel and he looks at you and and me and he says, I know you're frustrated with finances. I know money is a constant source of, of struggle in this shattered world and that's not the way I want it to be, but I hate that it's stealing life from you rather than giving life to you. I hate that you're imprisoned with fear and I want to set you free. I want you to live fully and free. So will you just please trust me? I love you enough to step out of eternity into the fabric of the human story and give my life to have you in my family. I promise I love you enough to provide. So bring the whole tithe to the storehouse. Put all your eggs in one basket. Trust me and you will begin to live free. You'll be able to step into the future I have for you. Worship anything else and it will rob your life, but I wanna give life to you. But God knows what we're like. He knows we're gonna hear that and the vision sounds compelling, but the dollars sound difficult. And we're going to go, that's too much. I, 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 it's too, that's, that's illogical. That's irrational. I just, I, I, I can't do it. But the catch is sometimes the thing that feels most illogical and irrational in our world is actually the best investment you can make in God's economy. But God knows it's not going to be easy. And so he says something next that's shocking to the crowd. That absolutely floors all these Israelite people listening to Malachi in this moment. They're they're gobsmacked when they hear it. I'm bringing that word back. I'm going to use it. I'll sneak it in later in the sermon. I just think it's it's a good word. But anyways, like they know the law. They know that Deuteronomy 6 says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. There's not a lot of wiggle room and shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus even quotes that one while the devil is tempting him in the desert. And yet in Malachi 3.10, God says, test me in this. And everyone's, oh, we're gobsmacked. Nailed it. I did it. I told you I would. But like God says, test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing there will not be enough room to store it. So this is the only place Ever, God invites us to test him. Finances are the only area where he says, try me out on this one because he knows it's gonna be a struggle for us. But he says, test me. I'm gonna give you 100%. Give me the 90 back and see what'll happen. What that means isn't that like if we give a tithe to God, he's gonna bless us with unbelievable wealth and all the desires of our hearts so that we can actually worship those things we wanted to worship more than him anyway. Like, yes, now I got it. It's not that. Israel's living in a drought. 
And part of the reason they're not giving is that money's a little tight. I think we all know when it gets a little tight, our fists tend to tighten around it. But what God's saying is you'll be faithful to me. If you'll put me on the throne, I'm gonna make it rain. I'm gonna open the storehouses of heaven. I will provide every single time. Trust me. You're gonna have more than you need. Just be faithful to me. And I can tell you, it's true. Like I have tested God in this and I have not regretted it, not one time, not for one second. Admittedly, I got scared into doing it as a kid. All right, there was this giant man named Dave Milne who ran a ministry for teenage boys at my church. And we would play just ridiculous games like this one Dave invented called Kill the Guy with the Ball. I had three friends who had to go to the hospital for that. Noah and Josh got stitches and Kevin broke his arm. Like, but as a teenage guy, it was a real blast. But Dave was intimidating. And I will never forget one night he talked to us about tithing. He sat us down and he said, boys, there's three things you gotta know. Number one, if Jesus is savior, he's also Lord. If he rose from the dead, he's right about everything, everything. Number two, he says we need to give our first 10% back to God to make sure our hearts are right, to make sure our worship's in the right place. And here's what I've learned over and over again in my life. God can do way more with 90% than you can with 100%. I love that line. I've never forgotten Dave saying that line. God can do way more with 90% than you can with 100%. And they said, number three, someday you're gonna have to give an account to God for everything you did with the blessings he placed in your hands. Until that day, you give account to me and I expect you to get it right. I was 130 pounds. I was terrified of Dave. There was no chance I wasn't doing it. But also I was like blown away by Jesus. So I walked out of the room and I just did it. With part-time jobs as a teenager and with every single job I've ever had since, I just, I, I gave it to God and I promise you, it's been a blessing. And it has set me free. And so if you're young, now is the best time to start. Not because the financial stakes are low, but because the stakes for your future are incredibly, unbelievably high. The sooner you learn that God really does provide, the less time you have to spend in the prison of anxiety about your money that has locked up so many people in our society. So many of the people around us are absolutely crushed by it and we don't have to live that way. I promise you can live fully and live free. I've seen it time and again in my life. When we planted revision, I made less money as I did as a youth pastor, except without benefits. And God never failed to provide. For a while, our church had no money. So I didn't get paid. But I still had four kids and a mortgage company that thought they were gonna get paid and God never failed to provide. I've seen it time and time again. I look at my life right now and I'm getting older. I'm bald. I don't know if any of you noticed, but it's true. Like I, I am constantly crushed with this sense that I don't have what it takes to do the job God asked me to do and I don't have the gifting to make the difference I want to make. I got a bum shoulder that has hurt every day for over a year and maybe just will forever. I have a teenage son and a preteen daughter at my house, and they're not here today, so I can admit to you, I have no idea what I'm doing. None. 
I'm just making it up and I'm getting it wrong at least as often as I'm getting it right. And yeah, I would not trade my life for anything in the world. There's not a number you could write me on a check that I would trade my life because God has been so, so good to me. And I don't know if all of you can say that, but I desperately want that for everyone in this room. God desperately wants that for everyone in this room. And I think part of the way you step into that beautiful story is to trust that he'll provide and allow him to sit on the throne of your life. And so I got a challenge for everybody this morning. It's irrational and illogical for you and for Revision Church. It's something we've never done before. I don't know anybody who's ever done it before, but I believe to my toes that who and what you're worshiping will determine the quality and the direction of your life. And I so desperately want you to live fully and live free that I'm going to challenge all of us to do this. It's I'm calling it the 90-day challenge, all right? And it's not about money, it's about trust. Here it is. If you have a God big enough to live open-handed because you know he's never gonna leave you empty-handed, I challenge you for the next 90 days to give your first 10% to God. 90 days, 10% of everything that comes in Give it to God and, and see what happens. And here's the deal. If at the end of 90 days, you're like, Mike, that didn't make a difference at all. Or Mike, my life is worse than it was 90 days ago. Or Mike, I'm still like crushed by fear about my financial situation. We will give every dime back. No questions asked. I'll write you a check and I'll give every dime back. Because here on this, this isn't about us. It's not about me. It's not about Revision Church. We're in an incredibly healthy financial spot for a church. We've been careful about what we spend. We've saved money every year while giving away over 20% to local and global church planting, to local and global missionaries who are reaching people for Jesus, to great organizations and to one doing great things. This has nothing to do with Revision Church. It has to do with you living fully and you living free. And if your inner skeptic is doubting me right now, if you're like, I bet he's lying about that. I bet it is about Revision. Give it to a different church. There are a whole bunch of them in Des Moines that are making a big kingdom dent. Give it to them. Now, I'll be up front with you. I don't know if I can get your money back from them. I'll ask. I'll write a nice note or, or something. But either way, I just, I dare you to try this for the next 90 days. Because I just think if you don't, if we won't be faithful in this area, what we're gonna see is, is that this thing that sucks life out of us continues to sit on the throne of our lives and we're gonna keep on believing the lie of our world that money can be and do for us what we desperately want it to do, but only God can really do, provide a hope and a future. But if we do it, like as we do it, as we take this irrational, illogical leap of faith and hand back to God what's his anyway, what we'll find is life and freedom. And what I promise we will find is that God wasn't kidding when he invited us to test him in this because he never fails to provide. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your greatness and thank you for your grace. Thank you for the way that you provide for us, that you place into our hands what we need, not always what we want, but what we need. Lord, would would you help us in the middle of a culture that's crushed by money, a culture full of fear about finances? Would you help us to live fully and live free by trusting you? Would you sit alone on the throne of our lives? 
so that we can step into the stories you want to write in and through us for our world. And I pray for us as we, as we stare down this challenge that you would move, that you would transform the way that we think and the way that we live and allow us to move toward the futures you have for us. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.